0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Revan Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to hear is a presentation I gave at Bishop Montgomery Catholic High School. Uh, I gave it on November 14th, 2007, and this was to a comparative religions class. A lot of fun some really good questions hope you find the answers stimulating so without further introduction my presentation to a comparative religions class at Bishop Montgomery Catholic High School well first of all I'm I'm happy to be here and um, and you sort of have to give your teacher credit for inviting a non-theist to speak because um, uh, most Buddhists don't really think too much about God. And and here I am speaking to you about things that might not be related to God in any way, you know? And so, I, uh, so thank you, Bernadette, for inviting me. And, and I think if you are into a lot of interreligious activities, the people that are left out are the atheists, the agnostics, and the non-theists. You know, they never get invited. You know, and I'm thinking, but why? Because they got something to say too. They're living a human life. They're in the world. How do they relate and give meaning to all the things that are going on? You know, what do they do differently than somebody who believes in God, I said to myself. I was at uh, Cal State Fullerton a couple weeks ago. I was invited to sit in on a panel, um, and this was a panel discussion about religion in the hospital. And the audience was filled with nurses and doctors. And, and so each, each religion, we had a, a Catholic Christian. That was her way of identifying herself. We had a Sikh we had a Muslim, we had a Jew, and we had me. And, and each one of them started off with, you know, when people get sick, it's sometimes determined by God how sick they get. And if you don't die, you should be thankful that God didn't take your life, that he gave you enough to work with, enough of a challenge that maybe exercised your faith but not enough to make you faithless. And, and the Sikhs said in the, when a person is born that their life is predestined and they're going to be sick this many times and they're going to have this kind of job and they're going to die here. Now, they don't know when they're going to die or what kind of jobs they're going to have, but, but they feel that God has already decided for them how their life is going to unfold. And I thought that was really an interesting way to look at being sick that it's something that, that God um, intended to happen. And then it got to me. And in Buddhism, nothing ever happens because of one thing. We are not monotheistic. If you, if you have to uh, think about what we are, you look at India 2,500 years ago, and it was polytheistic. There was a hierarchy of gods. You had the strongest gods and you had the weakest gods. But there wasn't ever just one God. That that was the God of the desert, which was uh, in the Middle East. and the Buddha never met anybody who believed in only one God. He only knew people that believed in many gods. So then one of the nurses said, well, if somebody gets sick and they're a Buddhist, who do they blame? <coughs> Is there anybody they can look at and shake their finger at and say, why me, why me? In the same way, perhaps a Christian Jew or Muslim or Sikh could say, but God, why me? Why did you give me this sickness? And I said, no, we can't shake our finger at any one thing. There are always five reasons in Buddhism why stuff happens. And the first reason stuff happens is because of natural laws, like gravity. So say you're walking in the hallway, and you slip, and you fall. Now, gravity had something to do with that. If we didn't have gravity, you wouldn't fall. You'd just sort of float, like on the space shuttle, right? Okay, so gravity does play an important part in our life. The natural laws, like, like earthquakes, the Earth's plate shifting, create tsunamis, and now people lose their whole village because of the, of the wave. And they would say, well, maybe if they are a Buddhist, they would say, well, it's not God, but it was this earthquake. And that's why the wave came, and that's why we lost our village. So natural uh, causes and consequences are a very important aspect in Buddhism of why things happen. The second reason things happen is because of biology, genes and chromosomes. That we're all different because of our genes and chromosomes. And some of us will get tall and some of us won't. Some of us will get sick more often and some of us won't. And genes and chromosomes may have something to do with that. The third reason stuff happens is karma. And and that's the thing most people think is the only reason. It's their karma. That's why they had the car accident. It's their karma. That's why they failed their class. Well, karma is one aspect of it, and karma for a Buddhist is the moral aspect. If you do unskillful things, if you have unskillful actions, unskillful speech, and unskillful thoughts, the consequences will be uncomfortable, the consequences may lead to more suffering rather than less suffering. (coughs) So perhaps if something is going wrong in your life, maybe it's because you yelled at somebody, or maybe it's because you hit somebody, or maybe it's because you had bad thoughts about somebody and those consequences are manifesting, but then you have to take into account the genes and chromosome stuff and the natural law stuff. Okay, so those three things in combination or why certain stuff happens. The fourth thing is Dharma. Dharma is your religious practice. If you are practicing a religion, it changes what happens to you and it changes what happens to the people around you. So a Buddhist would look at their religious practice as being very important because it does affect their life and the lives of people around them. And last but not least is mind. Our consciousness our consciousness creates a lot of stuff for us. Our consciousness creates a lot of anger and hatred. Our consciousness creates <laughs> greed and lust. Our consciousness uh, creates delusion and ignorance. And a Buddhist would say, the only way to change your mind is to do meditation. The whole process of meditation is, to ju- is designed to change how you think. So now you have these five things. And you're in the hospital and you have appendicitis. And you say to yourself, okay, well, as a Buddhist, I can't say God gave me this appendicitis or wanted me to have it. I have to say, well, did gravity give me the appendicitis? Probably not. Genes and chromosomes? Maybe. Maybe I was predestined because of my genes and chromosomes to have appendicitis at this time in my life. Karma, did my karma, was it some past unskillful deed? I did, and now it reached fruition. The consequences are apparent, I have appendicitis. Well, maybe, but that's sort of a tough one. Dharma, my religious practices, is that why I have appendicitis? Well, maybe not. But mind, did it give me appendicitis? No, but mind might be able to bring me to a place of acceptance with appendicitis so I won't have to suffer. So mind may be useful, but it probably wasn't the cause. So that's how we sort of look at it. And when I brought this up in this, in this religious panel, the, the, the doctors and nurses were a little bit surprised because, because we didn't have a fatalistic approach. We didn't look at ourselves as being a victim. We simply had more stuff to do When we got sick. Either two things are going to happen. One is you'll get better. And two, you will die. Every time you get sick. Those are the only two things that are going to happen. Thankfully, most of us get better. But once in a while, some of us don't. And then we have to die. So, as a Buddhist, our religious practice would help us take the pills and medication necessary to get well. Or to find a place of acceptance with the process of dying. How can we die as a Buddhist? How can we die skillfully as a Buddhist? And how can we get well as a Buddhist? So uh, I just wanted to start there, but that happened a couple weeks ago, and it was sort of fun for me to be in that forum. And I got an email from the person who put the the panel together. His name is Ben Hubbard, and he's in uh, Cal State Fullerton. And, and he said, "Thank you, Kusla, for being part of it because it's hard to find non-theists to come into these environments and speak about their tradition." And it is. Again, most non-theists don't have a strong need to preach because there's nothing to preach about. So you've been studying Buddhism in in your class. Does anybody have any questions they'd like to start with before I get into my monologue? Is, is there just something just really troubling you about Buddhism? You just can't figure out why they do what they do? Or, or who the Buddha was? Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, are the concepts of Dharma different for Buddhists and Hindus? Or? Good question. Are the concepts of Dharma different for Buddhists than they are for Hindus? Absolutely. Uh, in, in fact, the word Dharma, if you look in a Buddhist dictionary, has 16 different meanings, even in Buddhism. But the Hindus looked at Dharma a lot differently. So it would be sort of like this. Do the Jews look at their religion differently than the Christians, even though they might use the same Bible? And you'd probably go, yeah, the Jews look at it a lot differently than the Christians do. Well, the Buddha was a Hindu, just like Christ was a Jew. But the Buddha took the terms used in Hinduism and gave, him, gave them his own meaning. And so, yes, yeah, so we look at it differently. Yeah, thanks for the question. That's a good one. Anybody else have any more questions before I get going here and start talking? Okay, nothing else troubles you. Yes? Um, In Christianity, we have a lot of different sects and different stuff. Do you guys have that in Buddhism? Okay. In Christianity, you have a lot of different kinds of Christians, so we have a lot of different kinds of Buddhists. Is that a good paraphrase of what you said? Yes, it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. So you guys have like uh, the Catholic Christians, I'll call them that. Those are like the first Christians, I suppose, with the church. And then you, then all of a sudden, the Protestants came. And you went, geez, why did they come? Well, they looked at it a little bit differently. But how many different kinds of Catholics are there? You know, there are a lot. I didn't think that was the case until I started studying Catholicism a little bit. There are tons of different kinds of Catholics. There's the Benedictines and the, and, and the Jesuits. Um, um, at UCLA, uh, what do they have? They have the, it's another sect. It'll come to me. But there are a lot of different kinds of Catholics. And then you get into Protestants and you go, wow, look at all the Protestants. You've got the Methodists and Episcopalians, you know, and the Baptists and the Lutherans. And they all have a different way of looking at what the teacher or what Jesus said. And then you have, like, Unitarian Universalists. Well, they're even more different than any of those, Protestants and, uh, and the Catholics, you know? So you go, okay. Buddhism has three different kinds of Buddhism, major kinds of Buddhism. First one is Theravada, called Doctrine of the Elders. That's what that word means, Theravada, means Doctrine of the Elders. When the Buddha died, within 30 or 40 years after his death, 18 different schools of Buddhism arose. And these were monks and nuns who were debating and dialoguing on what the Buddha really meant. And so this group of monks said, well, the Buddha really meant this when he was saying this. And this group of monks and nuns said, no, he meant this. So they had 18 different schools of Buddhism. The only school out of that original 18 that exists today is the Theravada school, the Doctrine of the Elders. That's the more orthodox approach that has the longest history. First century, China, the great reform movement. Now the Protestants of Buddhism arise in the world. And they say, you know what? We have all these texts already written out. We don't need the monks and priests and nuns to tell us how to do it. We can do it ourselves. So we had this radical shift in how to practice Buddhism and what Buddhism meant. And even the goal of Buddhism changed. Because in the early school of Buddhism, they wanted to be arhants. An arhant is someone who listens to the teachings of the Buddha, practices what the Buddha said, and achieves nirvana. That's called an arhant. They didn't want to be arhants. They wanted to be Buddhas. We're not going to do what the Buddha said. We're going to do what the Buddha did. So we're going to be bodhisattvas first. And we're going to help all sentient beings. If they're suffering, we're there to serve them. Once all suffering has been eradicated from the earth, we will then accept our nirvana. So we went from the Arhant ideal to the bodhisattva ideal of others first. And then... In the 6th century, Buddhism finally made it over the Himalayas into Tibet. And now we have the Vajrayana, the diamond vehicle. And that's where the Dalai Lama comes from. If you know about him, there were four schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and the Dalai Lama is the head of one of those four schools of Buddhism. But what makes the Dalai Lama so special, and sometimes he almost looks like the Pope, doesn't he? The way everybody sort of treats him and stuff? The Pope of Buddhism, I must say. yes. And so what makes him so special is he used to be a political leader as well as a religious leader at exactly the same time, which is pretty unique in, in, in modern history. But, of course, that all changed in 1949. Yes? How do you spell these words? They are really tough to spell. And... And um, I would probably have to write them out. But if you go to my website, urbandharma.org, there's even a dictionary that has them all spelled out for you. So I won't have to give you the wrong information and the wrong spelling. Yeah? Could you pronounce the second, the Protestant, like It's called the Mahayana. 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 Mahayana means great vehicle. And they name themselves, which I get a kick out of. So they call themselves the great vehicle. And the early Buddhists, they called the Hinayana the little vehicle. Because they were selfish. They were only thinking about themselves. But we're the great vehicle because we think about everybody else first and then ourselves last. Now, in reality, of course, if you think about yourself first or the other first, you're actually thinking about yourself. Now, how does that work? How can we be thinking about two different things and still thinking about ourselves? Somebody asked me one day about generosity. Well, how do you practice generosity? That's the first perfection of Buddhism. That's the first way to become a perfect Buddhist, is to practice generosity. And I said, well, I practice generosity because I have greed. And I have a lot of greed. And the more I practice generosity, the less greed I'll have. And then they said to me, but isn't that being selfish? Because you don't care about the person you're giving the money to. You only care about yourself because you have greed. Do you care what the other person does with your money? I say, no. They can do anything they want. But what if they buy drugs and they make their life (laughs) worse? Well, that's their choice, I said to them. But aren't you trying to help them? I say, no. I'm trying to end my greed by practicing generosity. And now another Buddhist might say, but I only give to help the others because they're suffering. And I see the person suffering, and if I can give them just a little bit of money, they'll suffer less. So it's important as a Buddhist to help others, so they'll suffer less. Same teacher, two different ways of interpreting it. Ultimate reality in Buddhism. Ultimate reality in Buddhism is, we are all interconnected and interdependent. We are all interconnected and interdependent. Even if you think you're doing it for yourself, you're still doing it for the other person because you're all connected. Even if you think you're doing it for the other person and not yourself, you're still doing it for yourself because you're all interconnected. Some people need to start with themselves. Some people need to start with others. And I always have to smile when somebody says, I want to go out and help the world because I see so much suffering happening in the world. And I say to them, well, how is your family doing? Is any member of your family suffering? Oh, yeah, my sister just lost her job. And, and, and my father has a bad knee and it's really hard for him to get around. And I say to them, well, wouldn't it be maybe better to start with your family first and then save the world? They say, no, I want to save the world first and then I'll save my family. So there's two ways of approaching it, but the outcome is exactly the same whether you start with the other first or whether you start with yourself first, we're all connected and everybody benefits. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you mentioned the Dalai Lama, I was wondering, how do, how do Buddhists go about finding the Dalai Lama? If one of them dies, how do they find the next reincarnation? Yeah, now I, I'm not from that school of Buddhism, but I saw uh, uh, a movie about it. So let me tell you what the movie said. They have certain tests that they give the baby. So apparently what happens, and this is the only school of Buddhism that does this, so um, that when a a person dies, like a a high spiritual leader in Buddhism, they go out and try to find the reincarnation of this person. So they can teach the person and bring him back to where he was before he died. And so they have certain tests, and now the person that died left certain things behind. Maybe a favorite begging bowl, maybe a favorite robe, or religious uh, article, and they'll bring that along. And now they have this idea that, that the baby in this house is the reincarnation of the old monk that died. So they'll knock on the door and ask permission to come in and and look at the baby, and then they'll give the baby some tests, and they'll bring out the the stuff that he used to have in a past life and see if he recognizes it. He's able to use it. They'll also ask the baby some questions if the baby can talk to see what kind of answers. And that's how they found the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama wrote his autobiography. And so you might be interested in, in getting that because they went to his family, and when the monks decided he was the Dalai Lama, they took him from his family and they raised him in the temple you know so sometimes it's not good to be the Dalai Lama if you like your family because uh, the monks will raise you and you need to be uh, available to all the people in the world all the time is that helpful? okay it's an odd thing though it's reincarnation anybody believe in reincarnation? nobody believes in reincarnation? so-so? 50-50? could go either way depending on who's talking to you okay Now, maybe, okay, another 50-50, okay. You kind of do, okay, so maybe 60-40 for yes, okay. There are a lot of people that get stuck in reincarnation and rebirth. Let me me give you uh, what Buddhists say. Buddhists do not have reincarnation except for Tibetan Buddhism. We do not have reincarnation, we have rebirth. The difference between reincarnation and rebirth is this. reincarnation requires a soul the Buddha said we do not have a soul isn't that weird can you imagine not having a soul what would that feel like because everybody in your life I'm sure believes that you have a soul and now all of a sudden this religion from the east comes to America and starts to say we don't have a soul and I was born in Iowa I was raised in Phoenix, Arizona. I had a soul until I became a Buddhist. And then I'm wondering, well, where did it go? Why don't I have it anymore? And and then I started to read more and more about what the Buddha said about having a soul. And he said that we might have a soul. There's a good possibility that a soul exists. But then he went on to say, we are not that soul. That's not who you really are. You have a body, that's not who you really are. You have a mind, that's not who you really are. Wow, so now, not only do I not have a soul, I don't even know who I am anymore. So who am I really? What was my original face before I was born? A famous Zen koan. Well, that's a long story. But let me tell you about rebirth and reincarnation because there are so many Buddhists in America who do not believe in rebirth and reincarnation. They say it just can't happen. We never lived before. We'll never live again. Well, where were we before we were born? Have you ever thought about that? Now, I know you probably think a lot about where you're going to go after you die. But where were you before you got here? Were you any place? You didn't exist in any way? Hmm. Interesting question. I don't have the answer, but interesting question. So, Buddhism says, well, we did have many past lives. This is not the first time. We've been each other's brother and sister. We've been each other's mother and father. We've been each other's aunt and uncle. And yet, because we've forgotten all our past lives, we all look like strangers to each other. But wouldn't it be cool if we could remember all the different times we were here before? And then you're walking down the street and you see somebody and you say, Hi, hi, how are you? I haven't seen you in this whole incarnation. You're looking great. And they would go, yeah, right on. Good to see you too. When was it? Three lifetimes ago? Yeah, I remember. Okay. But we look out there and all we see are strangers we've never met before. How many people don't we know? Billions. We don't know billions of people. How many people don't we like? A few. How many people do we like? A few. How many people don't we care about? A lot. All the people we don't know. But if we knew them in past lives, we might have some feelings for them. So, a Buddhist struggles with this idea. Past lives, future lives. Past life, future lives. This is how I explain it. Think about yourself. One lifetime, this lifetime. Think about when you were five years old. Think about that picture of you at five years old. Think about the way you dressed and thought at five years old. Does that person exist today? Probably not. What happened to that person? They died. (coughs) They're gone. You'll never see them again. You have their ghosts in your mind of what you used to do when you were five. People remember you at five, but those are the ghosts of a former lifetime, in this lifetime. Sometimes, you know, adults have really big issues with being a teenager or being in their 20s or 30s and they did something really unskillful and they feel so bad about it and this issue keeps coming up and they can't resolve it. You know what I tell them to do? Have a funeral... For that person that used to live, for that person that made that mistake, who no longer exists in the world today, have a funeral for them. Put them to rest. Say some nice words. Hope they have a good rebirth. But they're gone. We can never go back and revisit who we used to be because they're dead. It's us right now that counts. So, if we're struggling with rebirth, think how many times you've been reborn in this lifetime already. Now, I'm 58 years old. When I was 50, I was different than when I was 40. When I was 40, I was different than when I was 30. It goes on and on and on. And when I'm 60, I'll be different. Less hair, less energy. Hopefully, I'll still have some teeth left. But, geez, every time I reach a new decade... I'm a completely different person. I even have to throw away the clothes. They don't fit anymore. The person who used to wear those clothes died. So I'm going, okay. So that's sort of how I approach rebirth. And I think the Buddha maybe would have agreed with me in some cases. When when he looked at a person, it is said he could look back 100,000 lifetimes. He could see all the lifetimes they had already lived. He knew exactly what they needed to hear and how to hear it. Can you imagine if you looked at a friend of yours and was able to see all the different ways they were reborn in just this lifetime and they were having problems? You could be of such great help to them. You would know exactly what to say because when they were seven and a half, they did this. They forgot. You can see it clearly. And you can can help them resolve those issues. Come back to a place of balance. So rebirth and reincarnation is a very important subject in Buddhism. And why? Because karma does not work without rebirth. Karma doesn't work without rebirth. Because we can be really unskillful in this lifetime. We can cause a lot of people a lot of suffering in this lifetime. And yet we have a good life. So where's karma? Why didn't karma come in... And make my life terrible if I've been mean and cruel to all these people in the world. Why is karma waiting to give me the consequences of my unskillful speech, my unskillful action, and my unskillful thoughts? Because just maybe in a couple past lifetimes, I was a really good person. And I helped a lot of people. And I acquired a lot of merit. And now that merit is being spent in this lifetime. So I don't feel the consequences of my unskillful activity in this lifetime because I had so much merit from a past lifetime. And you might say to yourself, well, how can that be, Kusala? How can that be? And I say to you, think of having a glass of water and a teaspoon of salt. And you put the salt in the glass of water and stir it up and all you taste is the salt. But if you took that same teaspoon of salt and put it in a forest pond and stirred it up, there'd be so much water you couldn't taste the salt. So in the same way, we could have so much merit from a past lifetime or two that we can't feel the unskillful consequences arising in this lifetime. But it does change. Have you ever seen somebody who was born in a really good family, had a lot of money, had all the opportunity any of us would want? And by the time they got to 35 or 40, they were just had the worst life you've ever seen. They lost all their money. Everybody hated them. They, they, had a, they were in charge of a business. The business went under. And you look at them and you go, what happened to you? And then you see some people who were born with nothing. And they turn around and do something with this life. So in Buddhism, there's nothing about predestination. We do not have predestination. We say, what happens tomorrow is because of what happens today. And if you want to have a good life, you need to do something good today. Pretty simple. But it works. Now, another important aspect of karma that maybe you didn't hear about is karma takes the place of God. Karma takes the place of God. And why is that? Because we do not have a divine lawgiver that tells us what is right and what is wrong. There's no one up there giving us tablets. You know, as a Buddhist, we look at karma. We look at cause and consequence. We look at skillful, unskillful. We look at more suffering and less suffering. We do not even have evil in Buddhism. If you take the word good and take an O out of it, you got God. If you take the word evil and put a D in front of it, you got the devil. We don't have God or the devil. We don't even have good. What we have is skillful and unskillful. More suffering and less suffering. For five years, I was a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall in downtown Los Angeles. And I met a lot of young people behind bars. And I didn't see an evil one there. I saw a bunch of unskillful young people who needed to learn some new skills so they could integrate into the larger community. That's all. No evil. No bad. Just unskillful. And if you're unskillful, you have the opportunity of learning new skills. If you're evil, you may just be evil. You know? So you might say, well, how about Hitler? Nobody likes to bring up Hitler. Now there was an evil guy. Well... Maybe, but maybe he was just really unskillful. Maybe he was so deluded and ignorant that he thought getting rid of a large group of people would make the world a better place. That sounds pretty stupid to me. That sounds pretty ignorant to me. But it doesn't sound evil to me. So I look at him as being really, really unskillful. Maybe one of the most unskillful men that ever walked the earth. And in Buddhism, it is said, if you are that unskillful, you go to hell when you die. So in Buddhism, we have heaven and hell, as well as nirvana. But the big difference between our hell and your hell, our heaven and your heaven, ours isn't forever. It's just a really long time, and then we get to leave. It's like this lifetime's not forever. And we have to transmigrate to another realm of existence. So if I go to hell because of something I've done, I'm going to suffer a whole lot. I'm going to wish I was never there. And then one day, I'll get to leave. And if I go to heaven, I'm going to be so happy I'm in heaven. It's going to be just what I wanted. But one day, I'm going to have to leave. So that's why they say in Buddhism going to heaven isn't the best place because you're going to be kicked out and you're going to be really bummed when it's time to leave because it's just the way you want it to be you don't want to go so in every form of Buddhism the ultimate destination is not heaven or hell it is nirvana nirvana is where every Buddhist wants to go can anybody give me a definition of nirvana? have you been studying uh, enough of Buddhism to sort of define that? Okay. Would anybody like to guess what nirvana is? Because Buddhists talk about it all the time. They used to have a, a musical group. Kirk Kilbane even used that word. Yeah. I'm just assuming, but is it, is it like a permanent heaven? Okay. That's, that's, that's a good guess. Not, not exactly, but thanks for taking the effort. Any, anybody else have any ideas? Yes. A permanent, state of peace. a permanent state of peace. That's getting really close. And it does fit that description. It is a permanent state of peace. So as a Buddhist, we don't necessarily want to be happy. We would much prefer to be peaceful than happy. Isn't that weird? Wouldn't everybody want to be happy all the time? How many people would choose peace over happiness? Anybody here? We got one, we got two, we got, OK, a couple. A couple see the value of peace. And not so much the value of happiness. But you know what the problem of happiness is? In order to be happy, you always have to have it connected to sadness. You can't have happiness all by itself. It's always connected to sadness. So one day we're happy, one day we're sad. But peace, hmm, much different animal. So, nirvana. Let me give you a definition of nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Nirvana is the end of karma. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Wow. So Nirvana is the end of suffering while you're still alive. It's the end of karma while you're still alive. And when you die, you'll never be reborn again. Now, how many people would like not to be reborn again? Anybody here? We have one. We have two. So where would you go if you're not reborn? Any ideas? Uh, well, would you exist? Yeah. I think. Well, being a Christian, I think heaven. Okay. Okay, being a Christian, you okay, going to heaven. But now, now try to think about a Buddhist. And a Buddhist has decided that the best thing to do is not get reborn again. Heaven's <laughs> impermanent, and we have to be reborn in heaven. But now we can't even be reborn in heaven because we've ended all our future rebirths. So does that mean that we don't exist anymore? And would anybody here not want to exist? You know? <laughs> Just not want to exist. <laughs> yeah. No, probably not. It's a tough one, isn't it? You have any ideas about non-existence and existence? I would say be more, be more about existence. You would say be more? It's about existence. Okay, okay. I think most of us would like to exist. I don't think any of us would like to not exist. Can you imagine dying and not having any place to go? What a bummer, you know? And that's why I feel sort of sorry for the atheists. You know, where do they go? Well, I figured it out. You know where atheists go when they die? They go to a cryogenics lab waiting for a cure. A little humor. They say that Walt Disney's head is in a cryogenic slab, frozen. <laughs> yeah, Waiting for when we can have like machine bodies. So let's put the head on and he'll be gone. That's the rumor. That's the urban legend. I don't know if it's true or not. But it's, it's interesting. So that, as a Buddhist, would I not want to exist anymore? I would say no. I still want to exist. But I'd rather exist and not be created. <clears throat> now, why would that be the case? Is everything in the world created? Anybody have an idea on that? Yes. yes. Okay. There's the one thing in this world that wasn't created. Not one thing. So we only know about creation. And we know it exists because everything here is here because of creation. What's the problem with creation? And I'm not talking about first cause because they're arguing about that now. Well, what's the first cause of creation? Was it the Big Bang Theory? Was it the String Theory? Was it God? Was it the Flying Spaghetti Monster? What was the first cause? Flying Spaghetti Monster. That's what I think, but that's just me. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's, it's not about that, but what is the problem with creation? It dies. It dies. Everything that's created has to die. Not one thing that was created hasn 't ever died not one thing, even the Son of God died Deez I mean if he can't make it, what's that say about us? So how about if you could exist without being created? What would that mean? If you could exist without being created, you would never have to get old, you would never have to get sick, you would never have to die. yes. Probably, because matter or form always seems to be in constant state of change and flux. Though my mind is in constant state of change and flux too, but maybe it's more like consciousness or energy. So this is what I think happened when the Buddha died. I think the Buddha was born. He had parents. There's a wonderful birth story about him. But then, because he was created, he had to die. But between his birth and his death, he achieved nirvana. So he ended his suffering. He ended his karma and he ended all future rebirths. Now, the karma plays a very important part in this because what's being reborn? Remember I said the Buddha said we don't have a soul? Or if we do have a soul, it's not who we really are? And that when we die, the soul does not go from one body to the next, according to Buddhism. So what transmigrates from one lifetime to the next if it's not the soul? The karma, the karmic energy. The Buddha said the karmic energy transmigrates from one lifetime to the next. Now, you've achieved nirvana. Buddha achieved it at 35. He ended his suffering. He ended his karma at 35. So, when his body died, he had no more karma to be reborn. That's why it's the end of all future rebirths. So, his body died, and yet, I think he still exists today because of his nirvana not because of his birth. And I think that everyone who achieves nirvana exists in that way. I don't know what that way is, though. I can't tell you. I take care of a koi pond at our meditation center, and we have turtles in the koi pond. And the turtles get to leave. They get to leave the koi pond and walk around, but the fish never do. So I'm thinking, what if the turtle and the fish got into a conversation, and the fish said, what's it like outside the pond? And no matter what the turtle said, the fish couldn't understand because it was beyond the fish's experience. Nirvana is beyond the unenlightened person's experience as well. So even if I could tell you what it was, you probably wouldn't understand because you don't have any experience. I can't tell you what it is because I don't have any experience, but I don't think it's non-existence. I think it's existence in a very interesting way, a very unique way. Did you have a question? Am I stimulating some, oh, yeah, yeah. some questions here? We you're way back, so I don't want to take you off your train of thought. Um I was just wondering if you might be able to kind of elaborate a little bit on um the realms of heaven and hell and what purpose they serve. Yeah. Yeah. Uh that's really good. And and I think the first thing we have to say is you being Catholic, I'm assuming you're either Catholic or Christian or both. And actually, they're both the same to me. But if you look at me, do you think I'm going to your heaven? Have I said anything to any of you that would lead you to believe Gabriel will welcome me through the gates? Any idea about that? Well, I bet if you were honest and felt confident, you would say, Kusla, there's no way in hell you're going to heaven. <laughs> and and i have to agree with you. Because there's nothing that I'm doing that would lead me to believe I'm going to heaven in the way you understand heaven. So that might leave me out in the cold except for one thing. I have Buddhist heaven. I get to go to Buddhist heaven. Now, I know this is a radical concept. And not everybody believes in diversity of afterlife. Because it just doesn't make any sense. And when I bring this up, people say, but it's just, it's one mountain with many paths. We're all going to the same place. I'm going, no, no. It's a couple different kinds of mountains. You know? And we're all going to different places. I think the Jews go to a different place. I think the Muslims go to a different place. I think the Hindus go to a different place. I know the Buddhists go to a different place. I think the Wiccans go to a different place. I think there's all sorts of places... We get to go, depending on our religious practice. So let me tell you about Buddhist afterlife. I'll give you the short version. It's called the Six Realms of Existence. In some of the longer explanations, we have 30 different heavens and 30 different hells. We have so many places to go, it's just confusing. We need Google Maps to figure out how to get there, you know? So, the first realm of existence is like the best heaven. It's the place where I think you guys get to go, because you're Christians. It's just the way it's supposed to be. It's perfect, and you don't want to change anything. For Buddhists, that's not good, because we need to change ourselves all the time. There's no way to acquire merit in heaven, because there's nobody to help. There's nothing to make better. It's perfect just the way it is. So we're happy to go there, but, but we're losing time in achieving nirvana by being in heaven because we can't get any merit. The second heaven realm isn't quite as good as the first one. I call this the Donald Trump heaven realm, and this one has desire attached to it. And if you're in this heaven, you want another wife or another building, and then it would be perfect, but you never get either. The third realm of existence is the human realm, and that's where we all are. And a Buddhist would look at this as being the best place you could be born, because this is where the Dharma is available to us. This is where we can practice generosity, compassion, acquire wisdom. We can go through a radical transformation and end in nirvana in the human realm. We can also feel a little suffering and a little pleasure, which allows us to understand the Dharma. Because if it's all good, the first truth of Buddhism is that life sucks. And if your life is all good, that won't make any sense to you at all. Now, the first hell realm is the animal realm. And I know if you have pets, if you have a dog or a cat or a fish or a turtle, you don't think of the animal realm as being a hell realm. But you know how they explain it in Buddhism? The animals, all they want to do is they want to sleep, they want to eat, They want to have sex, and they're totally confused. (laughs) Now, does that sound like anybody you know? Okay, when I looked at it, when I looked at that, I thought, okay, the animals don't have a chance to practice generosity. They don't have a chance to get wisdom. They're pretty much at an intuitive level and a subconscious level compared to us. So a Buddhist would look at that as being a hell realm. We do not want to be reborn as a cat or a dog. Now, we do have cats and dogs at our center. I take care of the cats and dogs. When we have Sunday service, they're in there listening to the Dharma. When we're meditating, they're sleeping next to us on the floor. And, And in Buddhism, what we say is every time a cat or dog comes in contact with the Buddha image or the smell of incense or hears the chanting or Dharma talks, it's planting seeds, and in their next lifetime, they'll come back as a human being. How cool is that? And then they can find the Dharma and become a perfected human being and never have to suffer again and never be reborn again. Now, the first really difficult hell realm is called the hungry ghost realm. And this is where you get this body that's like 12 feet tall, and you have this little pinhole for a mouth. And no matter how hard you try to satisfy your hunger, you never do because your mouth is too small and your body is too big. So you're always in this sort of state of craving and desire and thirst that can't be quenched. It's very uncomfortable. And finally, the last hell realm is the worst one of all. And you look just like you do when you die. There's no difference. You have this little hell realm body that looks just like you, and you're walking through this really nice park, and all of a sudden all the leaves turn into razor blades and fall off the trees and cut you into a million pieces, and you cry out in pain and suffering, and you are resurrected right on the spot to be killed again and again and again until finally all the karma that got you in hell is purified through your suffering, and you can be reborn out of it. That's called the worst hell realm of all. <laughs> so that's how we sort of look at our afterlife. We look at our afterlife as, as when I die, I am going to be reborn in another realm of existence. I could be reborn as a human being again, or the heaven <coughs> realm again, or the hell realm again. Now, when I bring this model up and explain it to people, they have this question. And you might have this question right now. Why are there so many people on earth? And why are more and more people being born all the time when you have all these different heavens and all these different hells? And is there a fixed number? Do they just keep recycling? Or do more people keep getting into the system? You know what it seems like to me? It seems like to me that more and more people are being reborn out of heaven and hell onto earth. For a year, I was a volunteer at state prison for men in Lancaster, California. Drive up once a week to talk to the guys in prison. I think a lot of those people were reborn out of hell. And they got to the human realm, and they just didn't have a clue what to do. Because they were used to working, out it, working it out in hell. you know. And so in this lifetime, it didn't work very well. But maybe if they get reborn again as a human being, they will have gained more skills because of this lifetime and be able to be of use and service to others in the next lifetime. So sometimes when I look at really unskillful people, I think to myself, you know what? I bet this is the first rebirth out of hell. And I should welcome them, but they're bringing a lot of baggage with them. And then sometimes you meet somebody who's an angel. And you go, wow. And maybe those are the people who were in heaven before. And now they're reborn back on earth. And maybe Mother Teresa was one of those. You know? That she was, from a Buddhist perspective, she had been in heaven for a while. And now she had been reborn back on earth to be of service to all those she came in contact with. And maybe now she's in heaven forever and ever because of all the good work she did. So that's how a Buddhist might uh, approach giving meaning to their life. They look at all the unskillful people, all the real skillful people, and say, yeah, hell realm, heaven realm, hell realm, heaven realm. Where do I want to go? What do I need to do to go there? Does a Buddhist go to heaven because of what they believe in? Because of the faith they have? Absolutely not. doesn't do us a darn bit of good to have faith. What we need to do is have good thoughts, good speech, and good action. That's our karma. We are proactive. We can't just hope it's going to work, because it never seems to. We have to do something about it. It's more important to do Buddhism than to be a Buddhist. It's more important to do Buddhism than to be Buddhism. So Buddhists have a lot of stuff they're always doing because that's their practice. Was that useful? Very. Mm -hmm. Okay. Have I simulated any more questions yet? Yes? No? Yes? Um, I heard you say that Buddhists don't believe that people have like a soul or a mind or something. But... Yeah. Okay, so what do you consider yourself? Because... Yeah. If you're reborn, like you're reborn, I don't know how to explain it. If you like, okay. what's the point of being reborn if if you're not if none of these things are real, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you said not real. Well, it's not like we're, we're you know the, the the really weird thing is we don't have much to say about it. You know, we, me, I, mine, I don't have much to say about it. People say, well, Kusla, why are you here? Why were you born? I said, well, my parents had sex and I had karma. You know, that's why I'm here. So it wasn't like I said, okay, I'm going to get those parents. They're going to be my parents. You know, it didn't sort of work like that. Um, um, so who am I? I that's a really a good question, you know. And, and, and let me explain to you the process I went through to come to a conclusion. It may not be a good conclusion, but it's something that I'm working with. So when I came to Buddhism, I sort of knew who I was. This was like 1978, 79. I was wearing these polyester shirts with the flowers, a lot of hairspray. I was looking good. <laughs> and and uh, I was a member of the National Rifle Association, and I was a Republican. And, and I knew how the world worked. It was black and white for me. The good guys wore the black hats or the white hats. The bad guys wore the black hats. Nobody in the middle. No gray. Well, then I got to Buddhism. It's all gray. There's no black and white anyplace. There's no good guys or bad guys. There's just more questions and more questions and more questions. So I eventually became a Democrat. I am now an independent. I'm maturing in my political perspective. I got rid of all my polyester and started to buy cotton. Much more comfortable. You can tell I got rid of the hairspray too, you know. (laughs) And, and, and I started to look at, say, who am I and why am I the way I am? Is it my fault or is it their fault? You know, and so who are they? Well, they turn out to be a really interesting uh, problem because uh, they're everywhere. And I said, okay, why do I speak English? Why do I have a language anyway? What is the history of the English language? I said to myself, who was the first person that spoke? And did they speak English? And I asked people and nobody had a clue. They say, why would you want to know that? I'm curious about why I'm the way I am. And I use language a lot. And how did my language start? Have people always spoken in this way? Well, I found a book, The History of the English Language. I started to read it, and I started to see that, you know, that it evolved, ever-changing, and I started to see the power of words, because if I could speak it, I could manipulate it, I could use it, I could own it. If I couldn't say it, if I didn't know what it was called, I couldn't do anything with it. So my parents gave me my language. I went back and said, if I want to understand how a human being evolves, all I have to do is look at my life. So I was born and I was the universe. There was no difference between me and everything. I was everything and everything was me. And if I cried and felt uncomfortable, the universe came and changed me and fed me. It was all about me. I was the center of the universe. And then something radical happened. Myself, my ego, my personality took root. It started to grow. And now there was somebody else in the room with me. I don't know where they came from or why they're there. But people kept calling her mom. Where did mom come from? Who is this person? And now when I cry the universe doesn't feed me mom feeds me Wow and then I had a hand before I had no hands or feet but I started to become self aware and realize I had these things and people would wave at me and say hi little baby and I would practice waving but you know what I wouldn't wave back at them I'd wave at myself because they were all waving at me so I would go hi It was still about me. And then somebody else showed up, and he was dad. Now dad and mom and me, we're together. We're the world. And mom wanted me to speak just like she did. So she would utter these sounds and point at things. And if I could connect the sound to the thing and repeat the sound, it made her so happy. So chair, chair. (gasps) Oh, she thought I was a genius. And I felt good about myself too, because now I knew that there was a chair, mom and dad, in the world. And my vocabulary continued to increase. And I was sent to this place where all people spoke all the time, and they even had boards and they wrote things out. And it turned out to be school. And there were a lot of us who couldn't speak very well who had to go to school to learn to speak and to get a better vocabulary. Because each time we could say it, we could own it. We could do something with it. So think about yourself with 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 words at your disposal. You can separate the world in 30,000 different ways. Wow! Talk about power. But you know what the problem with that is? The problem with dissecting the world in 30,000 ways is it makes you separate from the world in 30,000 ways. That you have this dis-ease and this discomfort and, and this sort of basic fear about life because you're no longer connected in the universal way you were before. you got your vocabulary. And not only does our culture give us vocabulary, it gives us mathematics. And now we can take two oranges and two apples and have four. Who would have thought? Our mind can now think in abstract ways unknown before. We can create buildings and bridges that can withstand the pains of time. All because we can speak and multiply. And who's doing all this? That's the big question for Buddhists. Who is in charge? And it's this ego. It's this self that keeps getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And that intuition that we all had when we were born is now gone. It's atrophied. None of us use it very much anymore. We use our intellect. We use our intellect to understand how the world works. The problem with self the problem with ego, the problem with intellect. It's all about the menu. We have created this wonderful menu of how life works. And we can run through the menu and look at certain dishes on it and say, I want that. But you know what? The menu has absolutely nothing to do with the meal. Not one thing. The map has nothing to do with the territory. The ego is always about the map and the territory. And a Buddhist says, if I want to know who I really am, I'm going to have to take this menu of how the world is and how I am. I'm going to have to take this map and I'm going to have to set it aside for a while. And I'm going to have to come to the direct experience of my life in the present moment. I'm going to have to get rid of past and I'm going to have to get rid of future. I want to see who's writing the story of my life. I want to see where those thoughts come from. How does it start? So we we begin meditating. And we sit on the floor for hours at a time. And we're watching the sensation of breath going out and coming in. Going out and coming in. And it is so boring. And all our mind wants to do is think about the fun stuff and the good stuff. The stuff we could be doing in the future. The stuff we shouldn't have done in the past. And we're sitting there breathing in, breathing out, breathing in breathing out and what that sensation of breath is that is the portal that is the doorway to the present moment experience of our life that's it every time we have a sensation in our body it's happening right now right now so we're concentrating on the sensation of breath sensation, sensation all of a sudden all the past thoughts fall away all the future thoughts fall away the thought process starts to slow down and become less of a distraction. So the little voice in your head starts to get more and more quiet, like you're turning down the volume. And what you're starting to see now is how your life is put together. We're losing our mind and coming to our senses. It's our sense doors. It's, it's the sense door of touch. It's the sense door of sight and sound and smell and taste the activity of consciousness, the thinking, those are the building blocks of our life. And our ego, our self, our personality, takes those building blocks and assembles them into a story with a past and a future. And we're in that story. We are the writer of that story. We are including friends and relatives in the story. We are including people we don't like in the story. We don't include people we don't know very often in the story. And sometimes we're a victim. Sometimes we're a victor. Sometimes it's a good day. Sometimes it's a bad day. But you know what? The day itself has no value at all. It's just a day. It's the way we interpret the day. It's the way we perceive the day. It's how we're feeling about the day that makes the day a good day or a bad day. So now a Buddhist comes to the... To the conclusion that self, that ego, that personality, that who you really are, is a process, an ongoing process, continually changing and in a state of flux. And you say to yourself, but but who am I really? What's that one thing that doesn't change? What's that one thing that I really am? Where does that live? 1978, a book came out called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, written by Robert Pierzig. And in that book, he had a Honda Superhawk 400, and his buddy had a BMW R80. His buddy always felt that the BMW had more quality than the Honda. He was a teacher in this book, a professor, and he gave an assignment to his class. And the assignment goes like this. I want you to write a short essay on quality. You can pick anything you want. You can pick a a brick wall, a building, a bridge, a car, a house, or a watch, and explain to me where the quality is located. What part of the watch, the building, the bridge, the brick wall has the quality? Not one student passed. Not one student could find the quality of anything. Now, as I was reading this book, I thought, wouldn't it have been cool? If they took these two motorcycles out to a Kmart parking lot, gave them a bunch of tools, and they took their motorcycles down to their 10,000 pieces. So you had 10,000 Honda parts over here, and you had 10,000 BMW parts over here. You gave each one of them a magnifying glass, and you say, okay, I want you to look at each part of your motorcycle, and I want you to find the quality of that motorcycle. Where does it live? Where does it exist? Is it independent? And I imagine them looking part-to-part, piece-to-piece for the quality of their motorcycle. And they came back hours later, shaking their heads in disbelief. I can't find the quality of my motorcycle. It doesn't exist in any of the pieces. And yet somehow when the 10,000 pieces come together and create one, quality arises. That sense of quality is there only if there's one, not if there's many. And I thought to myself, if I look at myself as one, I have a self. I have a personality. I have an identity. But if I take myself down to 10,000 pieces, where do I really exist? In In which piece do I truly exist? The fingernails, the hair, the sinews, the bones. Where do I exist? So I think the illusion of one is very important. We all think one is the best number. One God, one nation. I'm a child of the 60s. One, for me, was the loneliest number. And now we're in 2007 and we're in a postmodern time. And what that means is we are taking one and taking it apart to find the essence. Buddhism would say this about who you are Nothing in who you are exists independently. If you try to find an independent quality, self, or essence, you will be disappointed. Everything about us is conditional. We exist because of other things, not because of who we are. And I freaked out. You mean we exist because of everything else and not anything about ourselves? I don't exist because I'm here but I exist because there's enough air for me to breathe, enough water for me to drink, enough food for me to eat, clothes to cover my body and shelter to protect me. That's why I'm here, not because I'm here. And that's how it works. Everything in the world, according to Buddhism, is conditional. It's all here because of other things. And when you try to find out what that one thing is, all you keep finding is all the other things that come into play to create that one thing, the illusion of the one thing. Isn't that interesting? So it's a really long answer to a simple question, who are you? But as I struggle with that, I came to the conclusion that I am a process. I exist because of you right now. If you hadn't asked that question, I wouldn't be speaking like this. I exist because of everybody here. If you weren't here, I wouldn't be here either. I exist because there was an email that came to my computer that brought me here. I exist because Google Maps told me how to get here. I exist because of everything in the world that has nothing to do with me, which is sort of disappointing. Because I, I started as the center of the universe, and now I've come to the conclusion that I'm just another piece in the giant mechanism of life. Now, can I be free? Can I be free? Because one of the goals in Buddhism is to be free. I was giving a talk at Homeless Healthcare, which is a homeless facility. There were 60 people who were practicing Buddhism as I was invited to give a talk. And you know how I started my presentation? I said, okay, who here wants to be more comfortable? And about 10 people raised their hand. Then I said, who here wants to be free? And almost everybody raised their hand. Does anybody here want to be free? Okay, well, cool. Let me tell you what it means to be free in Buddhism. To be free in Buddhism, you can't be a Buddhist. Because if you're a Buddhist, you're not free. If you want to be free in Buddhism, you can't be a guy or a girl. Because that doesn't make you free. It puts you in a prison. It gives you a certain set of rules and ways to look at the world. Do any of us want to be free, really? And then free from what? I struggle with this, because Buddhism doesn't really tell you right out. Be free from what? And it's be free from my parents? Well, that happened a long time ago. Be free from my creditors. Don't have any charge cards. Be free from this. Be free from that. What am I supposed to be free from? And then it dawned on me. In Buddhism, the ultimate goal is to be free from suffering. (coughs) Free from suffering. Can anybody tell me what what suffering is? Give me a definition of suffering. This is a tough one. But this this is the crux. This is, this, is the, this is why there is Buddhism in the world, because of suffering. Because I, I would think it would be identifying self with all that you were describing. Well, perhaps. That's, that's more difficult than the definition I was looking for. Can anybody give me a simple definition? Does anybody suffer here? Pain. Okay, pain. You said pain? Is pain suffering? Anybody think pain is suffering? Okay. yeah, have two people who have pain and suffer. Okay. Can you have pain and not suffer? Yeah. So if you could, then maybe pain really isn't suffering. Maybe suffering happens because of pain. Yeah. Maybe. We could look at it so sort of that way. <coughs> okay. Let me share with you the best definition I ever heard. Seventh grader, Glendale, California, giving a talk to her class. Esmeralda was her name. At the end of my presentation, she raised her little hand and said, Reverend Kusla, Reverend Kusla. I said, yes. She said, I know the difference between pain and suffering. I said, oh, what, what? Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. Cool. Suffering happens when you have a Ford and want a Honda. Yeah. Suffering happens when you want things to be different than they are. How many of us want things to be different than they are? Everybody. We're not happy with the way the world is, with the way our life is, with the way the school is, the freeway is, the grocery store is. It can always be better. People take far too long in line to pay. Cashiers are illiterate. You just look around and you go, wow. Now, are we going to change the world? Can we make the world a perfect place? Because it's so imperfect and all we're doing is suffering. Can I change the world? Could I cover the earth with a piece of leather? Or would it be more sensible to simply buy a pair of shoes? So maybe I don't need to change the world to not suffer. Maybe I need to change me. Because the world is just sort of going to be the way it is. Always has been, always will be. The world is not a perfect place. The Buddha called this world samsara. This is the place where birth and death occur. It's a very uncomfortable place. People are dying all day. They're being born all day. And in between, they're suffering a lot. So can we... How much time do we have? have seven minutes. Seven minutes, okay. So can we come to a place of acceptance with the way things are? Oh, I, I'm sorry. How much time do we have? It's 2.20 or 2.25. 2.20. Okay. Oh yes, it'll happen, but I'm making my point right now. The point is, if you want to end your suffering, the world isn't going to help you. The world will not take away your pain. Pain is something you have because you have a body. Pain is something you have because you have a mind. You have emotional pain, you have physical pain. But you don't have to suffer with the pain. You can come to a place of perfection in your life, not because of the world, but because of what you do in the world. Buddhism is designed to bring us to a place of peace. To bring us to a profound sense of acceptance with the way things are. Not needing to change anything. Not even the 405 freeway. It is perfect, and a Buddhist sees the perfection when they're enlightened. I can't see it yet. It doesn't look perfect to me. I'm not enlightened. But in Buddhism, that's the goal. To see the perfection of the world and to see perfection in every human being in the world. Any questions? Yes? Um, as far as, like, I didn't even talk really about the Eightfold Path. Yeah. All, like, the right thinking and everything. Yeah. Which part do you find the hardest to follow? Well, good question. I think the, probably the hardest to follow um, would be the uh, the first part. And Let me me put it this way. The Eightfold Path, the way I understand it, is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories, personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. The first category of personal discipline has three path factors, right speech, right action, and right livelihood the second category of mental purification has three path factors right effort, (coughs) right mindfulness, and right concentration meditation the third category is the wisdom category and it has right view, right intention I find in my own practice the most difficult part is to keep the five precepts the five precepts a Buddhist accepts when they practice Buddhism is I will avoid taking life I will avoid taking what is not given I will avoid sexual misconduct. I will avoid lying. I will avoid consuming intoxicants. And those are so difficult. <coughs> have you ever had a mosquito buzz your head at 3 o'clock in the morning? And wouldn't the easiest thing to do, just kill that little sucker and go right back to sleep? And now you're practicing not to kill. And you go, oh man, i got to get out of bed, catch the mosquito, take him outside, let him go. I'm never going to get back to sleep again. Maybe I'll buy a mosquito net so I won't have to get up. And then the mosquito can exist with me in the room. Maybe that's what I'll do. Does everything want to stay alive because it was born? Yeah, even the cockroach doesn't want to die. I'm thinking this is so hard to practice, not taking life. Should I be a vegetarian? Am I contributing to the mass slaughter of millions of creatures because I like a chili cheeseburger once in a while? Now I've got to think about that too. Are vegetarians really better just because they can't hear the broccoli scream when it's pulled out of the ground? You know, I mean. So so what I find is practicing the precepts, that first category, right speech, right action, right livelihood, is probably the most difficult on a daily basis. Meditation is difficult, but it's, it's not... In your face every moment of the day. You, you're 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night. Sometimes you go on a treat and sit a little bit more. But those precepts are there with you all the time in everything you do and everything you say. So that's the most challenging for me. Thanks for the question. Anybody? Uh, okay, let me get. Okay. It's, uh, well, yeah. Uh, it's from, uh, Okay. Wisdom, uh, saying, yeah. After I chopped wood and, water. Yep. After I chopped wood and water. I just want to know if, what the heck that means, huh? Okay. Good idea. Um, the question before I was enlightened, I chopped wood and carried water. After I was enlightened, I chopped wood and carried water. Uh, and so I sort of look at it like this. That when we start our spiritual journey, whatever spiritual journey we choose to take, we are a certain way. Most of us are rooted in the mundane, the secular. We've, we've, we, we lack the vision of spirituality. We don't see the interconnection and interdependence of all things. And I can remember before I became a monk and was studying meditation and Buddhism, I was so excited about all the wisdom I was coming in contact with, and the unique ways of looking at the world, and I could hardly shut up. Everybody I came in contact with, I just blabber on and on about how cool Buddhism was, and there was this really pretty girl that I wanted to ask out, and I finally did, and she said yes, and we went to this movie, and we're having dinner, and all I'm talking about is Buddhism and ultimate reality, and we're really all the same. It's obvious to me that there's no difference between men and women, And, and gosh, and she looked at me and said, well... If there's no difference, why did you ask me out? And I said, yeah, what's wrong with me? I've, I've got so spiritual now that, that I just see everything as one and all connected, and, and, and I wasn't letting her be a girl and me be a guy, and so our role-playing was really confused, and she didn't feel like it was a very good date, and I never saw her again. <laughs> And and so as I continued to practice and and become a bit more wise, women became women again and guys became guys again. And so when I first started, you know, guys were guys and girls were girls. And there was a moment in my spiritual maturity that everything was the same. And then I got past that and guys were guys and girls and girls were again. Now my relationship, if I was carrying water and chopping wood, my relationship to the chopping and the carrying would be a lot different in the second part than in the first part. In the first part, I was doing it. In the second part, wood was being chopped, water was being carried, but there was no one chopping or carrying. But it was still being done. That's the Zen stuff for you. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, is there like a deeper meaning to uh, wearing robes and stuff? As like a way of like making yourself from a humble or anything? Yeah, good question. It's it's uh, like joining the military, sort of. And, and if you all have the same uniform on, there's not a better one or a worse one. There's sort of an equanimity about that. Men and women also wear the same robes. Uh, if you look at the way the robes are designed, it doesn't show off your body very much. And so the, the chance of becoming lustful after a robe is diminished dramatically. You know? So there, there, there is some practical value to wearing robes. Uh, it, and, it, and, and when you have no hair and wo- robes, you know, when you look in the mirror, there's not much to be attracted to, you know? And and I find it, and, and And there's always that problem with, you know, attraction and lust and clinging and stuff like that. And so now at my current age, I, I've realized that I'm going to give up being attractive. I just don't want to be repulsive. And so, you know, I still brush my teeth and wear my deodorant, but... But I, I see the robes really allow me to be different and, and not fit in also. That I don't fit in any place. When I came here, if I had my robe on, they would have said, who's that? Mm-hmm. Well, they said that anyway. But but no matter where I go, the only place I fit in is at the monastery, at the meditation center. So it's sort of leaving the world in a very real way when you dress like this. Because the only place you fit in is in your religious community. So that's a good way too. Okay. Well, we're getting down to the end and I play blues harmonica, you know? Uh, it's something that uh, I started doing a long time ago, and then I thought to myself, what other kind of music would a Buddhist play? You know, it's just its all about the blues, isn't it? You know. Though I, I've just in the recently started playing mandolin as well, which is a lot of fun. So what I like to do is just play a little blues, just because you've been listening to me really well. I, I'm surprised at your attentiveness. I guess that's the word. And and I appreciate that. And so now you'll be able to leave it with a smile on your face, not just have to think about suffering. (laughs) Here we go. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. Well, that's it. That was my presentation to Comparative Religions class at Bishop Montgomery Catholic High School. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.